The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am absolutely honored and delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Will Harris. He is a fourth-generation cattleman who tends the same land that his great-grandfather settled in 1866, White Oak Pastures in southwest Georgia. Mr. Harris holds a degree in animal science from the University of Georgia's School of Agriculture. He went from being an industrial livestock producer to being recognized internationally as a leader in humane animal husbandry and environmental sustainability. He is the immediate past president of the board of directors of Georgia Organics, He is the beef director of the American Grass-Fed Association and was selected in 2011 as Business Person of the Year for Georgia by the Small Business Administration. Mr. Harris and his family and his 100 employees raise and process 10 different species of animals as well as slaughter on the farm in USDA-inspected plants. His cattle, goat, and lambs are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, and he has more information on his website, www.whiteoakpastures.com. Welcome, Mr. Harris. Well, thank you very much, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be here. appreciate all those kind things you said. I do want to say that, as you said, I am the fourth generation, and uh, two of my daughters work with me, and one of them is pregnant, and the uh, sixth generation will be born this December. That's our 150th year, so we're very proud of that. Well, that is fabulous. Congratulations. This is great news. Thank you. We graduated from college at about the same time, and it's interesting that you learned industrial farming methods when you went to school at the University of Georgia. And just as a parallel universe, I want to say that I was in the School of Home Economics, And we studied, of course, dietetics, food and nutrition, but we never studied agriculture. So I think it's great that you and I are coming together now to talk about how food, health, and agriculture connect. So tell me a little bit about your farm and how you shifted your great-grandfather. His farming methods were pasture-based. And then through the generations after World War II, the system changed. It moved to an industrial model. And you took it back. Well, I should say you you moved it forward, but borrowing on your great-grandfather's wisdom. Well, the thing that I guess I enjoy the most about this farm today is the way that over the 150 years it's come full circle from the way my great-grandfather and grandfather farmed, which would have been with uh, uh, a lot of respect for the animals and the land, to the changes that my father's generation made immediately after World War II. I call that the uh, industrialization, commoditization, and centralization. And then uh, my daughters and I are taking it back to a production system that's very focused on animal welfare and environmental regeneration. So that's we really get a lot of joy from that. 
Mm-hmm. In one of the interviews, you mentioned how you enjoy watching your animals. And the, and the people who have animals in confinement, like you, you mentioned, you know, nobody wants to watch a pig in a farrowing crate. I thought, you know, that's a really brilliant observation. The way you farm is beautiful and humane, and the industrial system is really cruel. Well, the, it is. There was a paradigm shift. The, the changes that were made for industrialization were done with the focus being to make food cheap and abundant and, quote, safe in one, one definition of the word. And everything was about efficiency in order to accomplish that. And the unintended consequences fell on the backs of the animals and the land and the rural economy. And under that system, good animal welfare had come to mean that stockmen did not intentionally inflict pain and discomfort on the animal. And if you refrain from that conscious infliction, it was just considered pretty good animal welfare. And when we rethought all that, we realized that that is not adequate, that in truth it's incumbent upon the stockman to create an environment that allows the animal to express instinctive behavior. And if you do that, it's good animal welfare. You know, chickens are supposed to scratch and peck. Cows are supposed to roam and graze. Hogs are supposed to root and wallow, and none of those activities can be accomplished by the animal in the confinement industrial factory farm model. Mm -hmm. Do your neighbors comment to you that, well, what you're doing, Mr. Harris, is very nice, but you're not going to feed the world like that? Yeah, I get that a lot. You know, I'm one of the I'm one of the good old boys that went commando, and there's not a lot of us. Most of the people in this movement came to it from somewhere else. So as a result, I'm still fairly well connected with the big ag community. And my response to them is, well, if you're talking about how much food you can make per acre, you win. But... If you're talking about other things, then my production model is more resilient than yours. If we're going to run out of fossil fuel, then my system is more resilient. If we're going to run out of antibiotics that pathogens are not resistant to, then my system is more resilient. If we're going to kill all the uh, life in the sea, then my system is more resilient. If we're going out of water, my system is more resilient. I can go through dozens, maybe hundreds, of scenarios in which my system is really the more sustainable, more resilient, better system. But theirs is efficient, highly efficient. If all you consider is how cheap you can make copious quantities of food. Mm -hmm. And I think you used the word obscenely cheap. I wonder if you could just expand on what you mean by that. It cost me almost $4 a pound to raise a truly pastured, non-GMO, Step 5 plus certified humane heritage breed chicken and put it in the bag. 
the product, the poultry product, with all the attributes, it costs $4 or so a pound to raise it and process it. I see advertisements for whole chickens on sale for a dollar a pound. Yeah. If it actually costs me $4 a pound, and we, I think we do a very good job, yet you can buy an industrial commodity chicken for a dollar a pound, I call that obscenely cheap. Mm-hmm. I think it's obscene because it's not taking into account the exploitation that takes place along its route of production, nor are we accounting for the illness that results in rural communities where these animals are kept in confinement and the water is polluted and, as you mentioned, the antibiotic resistance becomes a, a problem. So I, I join you in that sentiment. Well, it's, it's those unintended consequences that keep rearing their ugly heads and it's borne by the land, the animals, and the people. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. In preparing for this interview, I listened to many of your interviews and read many of the press reports that have come out about what you're doing. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that when you graduated from college, your father said, you know, don't come back to the farm yet. We want you to work off the farm. And you worked for Goldkist. Tell me what you took away from that work. I worked for the farm, sir. It's not, it's not in business anymore. It was a farm cooperative it was a farm service organization. We ginned cotton and had grain elevators and peanut vine points and uh, actually sold and applied pesticides and chemical fertilizers. So it was, it was the belly of the beast in terms of industrial agriculture. And I fit there very well at that point in my life because that was the way I had been raised by my father and the way I had been trained through my formal schooling. So it was good. I was good at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm really glad that I did it. You know, I, I gained a lot of business expertise that uh, allowed me to come back here today and make the changes that I made. And it emboldened me to make these changes. And in fact, when my daughters graduated from college, I didn't let them come back here at first. Uh, they they stayed gone about a year at my insistence, and two of them have come back now. Mm-hmm. And you also, when you did come back to the farm, you enjoyed the industrial model. You enjoyed the competition of seeing how much more weight you could get your animals to gain. And, by yes, the it may have said to give the animal 20 cc's, but you would give them a little bit more than that to see if you could get them to gain weight even faster. But somehow something clicked, and you broke away from that competitive industrial model. What was it? Before I mention that, I want to add that is also very financially rewarding. You know, we, we made money yeah. in the industrial cattle business. But the, your question was, why did we move away from it? And yeah. the answer is, uh, we, for whatever reasons, and I'm not sure what those reasons are, but for whatever reasons, we, I guess I'd say I, because I was the only generation on the farm at the time, I became increasingly disgusted with the excesses of that production system. And say so disgusted with the excesses, what I mean is the unintended consequences. They went from being absolutely invisible to me to being increasingly apparent and obvious, and then uh, eventually to being intolerable. 
Hmm. What did you see first? You know, I've, I've had that question before, and I, I'm not exactly sure. I think probably the first the animal welfare probably hit me first. I think that you can legally load 48,000 pounds of live cattle on a truck. And so that means about 100 500-pound calves. And I used to do that. You know, we'd wean calves and load them on a double-deck semi, the ones on the top defecating and urinating on the ones on the bottom. They would leave here where they'd been born and, and live with their mothers all their lives and drive maybe 30 hours without food or water or rest to a feedlot in uh, Iowa or Nebraska somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just not what I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, you've got a 5-plus rating. Do you want to talk a little bit about those animal welfare standards and how you came to them? I will. So we are the only farm in the country that has a 5-plus rating on all the species that Global Animal Partnership rates. I think it's hogs, cows, turkeys, and chickens. We actually raise more species than that. Those are the ones that they have a rating system for. And I think Global Island Partnership is a a good organization doing good work. We also are audited by Humane Farm Animal Care, which is certified humane, animal welfare approved, and it's a little different, but American Grassfed Association. And some others, we're non-GMO project certified, but much a bunch of stuff. And what happened was the uh, first time I ever saw the word humane and livestock used in the same sentence was in the early 2000s. It was uh, Humane Farm Animal Care. So uh, I invited them to come and audit my farm, paid them, I think back then it was like 400 bucks. And we passed the audit, and later on I saw another one, and, and it, it you know, I, I'm, I'm already disappointed I got to stop because it's, it's, uh, it, there's a cost in all of them, a financial cost. But it's kind of like a, a Boy Scout getting merit badges. You know, you another one, you see another one, you say, I think I can do that. So you, <laughs> you, you spend the time and effort and money to do it, and it, at some point you probably got enough. But I do think that for farmers that sell direct to consumers, you really don't need all those certifications, but in our case, we sell some direct to consumers, certainly. But we also sell to grocery distributors and food service distributors. And I feel like my customer deserves those verifications that come from having those audits. Yeah, I appreciate that sentiment as a consumer educator because I think that when you see those certifications, you don't have to be an interrogator for the farmer. You already know what they're doing, and you can move on to other things. So I appreciate that. I need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Will Harris, who owns and operates White Oak Pastures, a pasture-based livestock farm in southwest Georgia near Bluffton. Let's talk a little bit, though, about the certifications that you have and The role of Whole Foods, because if I'm understanding your history correctly, Whole Foods was really instrumental in providing some funding for you to develop your on-farm slaughter facilities. Is that correct? 
They did. I believe we were the first farm that was granted a loan under their Produce a Loan program. And I think it was in 2007. And we uh, that's when we built our first abattoir or processing plant or slaughter plant. It was for red meat animals. We spent $2.2 million on the plant. And Whole Foods loaned us 450000 of that. Since then, we've spent another million dollars on it, making it bigger and better. And then two years later, we built a poultry slaughter plant or abattoir. Mm-hmm. I bring this up because for farmers wanting to make a shift from that industrial system that they sense is wrong, but they don't know how to get out of it, understanding some of the challenges that you went through and how you came out ahead in the end, I know you mentioned that you were making money in the industrial system, but you wanted to make a switch. Tell me about the financial challenges that you faced and how you overcame them. Yeah, I would decision to transition this farm was not a financial one. In fact, when I started making the changes in the mid-90s, I had never lost money for a year on the farm. We pay taxes every year. I had no debt, and it was a, it was a good little family business. And it had been the family at that time for four generations, and everything was fine. That's not what drove the change. But The finances certainly got involved when we made change because at first the changes were gradual and they just caused us to make a little bit less money than we had previously, and that was okay. But at a point, the changes became significant enough, the operational changes, we can talk about what they were, but uh, they became significant enough that we started losing money. We were putting value into our product that we couldn't extract back from the marketplace just too early in the game. Then, while we were still in that process of losing money, we realized that we were going to have to build the slaughter capacity. Some areas don't have to do that. We did have to do it. It just wasn't the the capacity here. So we borrowed $7.5 million over about a five-year period during which we were losing money. We had a had a very uh, visionary banker, and uh, almost all the money that went into it was family money or borrowed money that we personally guaranteed, other than the $450,000 from Whole Foods and about 460000 from the state of Georgia. So we went from no debt, making money every year, to a lot of debt and losing money. And it was very dark days and very stressful. But uh, fortunately, we caught traction in the marketplace before we went broke. And uh, ultimately, the business became, again, profitable. And uh, we still have debt, but we paid a lot of debt. And we're very glad we did it. But there were some very dark days there. Mm-hmm. You know, being the fact that you were immediate past president of the board of directors of Georgia Organics, I'm sure you are involved in policy issues. And in looking forward to other farmers who want to make these shifts, what are the biggest policy issues that you think we all need to come together to work on to make your system of farming the norm? Well, this uh, this may not be exactly the answer that you were expecting, but and there are there is some 
some limited policy work that that would be helpful and beneficial. But uh, I don't believe that the answer is in politics or regulatory. The expansion of this kind of farming will be consumer-driven mm-hmm. if it occurs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it, it it's a growing niche. When I first started, uh, it's kind of changing my farm. I thought I was an early innovator changing the way America farms. don't necessarily embrace that now. Today, I envision myself as a person who has found a way to farm the way I want to farm. And uh, there are others that can do it. This is going to be consumer-driven, not policy-driven. Yeah, well, it's very interesting that you mention this consumer-driven piece because as a dietitian, I hear mixed messages. I certainly know that your method of farming is the best to protect our waterways, our total environment, our air quality, not to mention the nutritional quality of the food that you produce. You're very familiar with the benefits of grass-finished meat, having a better fatty acid profile, for example. But do you realize that the cattlemen's industry tells dietitians that there's no difference between a corn-fed animal and a grass-fed one. I mean, the literature that comes out of the industrial model is wrong. And we, I think, as farmers and consumer educators, those of us who work in the health field, really need to come together to help consumers better understand the greater value of the food that you're putting on the plate and beyond. Yeah, I do realize what you said that I do, and there are several, several comments I'd have to make here. Uh, the, I guess the, 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 the bulk of your comments regarded the uh, NCBA and when in for, for uh, beef or cattle, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, mm-hmm. and the same could be with all the other industry trade groups. And what you've got to remember is uh, grass-fed beef production in this country is very, very, very small. I, I keep reading it's 3%, but I'll give you the big tip. It is not 3%. It's far less than that in this country. So you've got an organization of cattlemen, in the case of the NCBA, and the NCBA is not just cow-calf people. It's feedlots. It's a big you know, international meat company, multinational meat companies. And do you think they're going to publish information saying, by the way, the 3% is better than the 97%. No, no, that's not that's not going to happen. And now, the other comment I'd like to make is uh, I used to, this, this is just talking about Will Harris, I used to pontificate about nutrient density and food safety and health and all these things, but I found it necessary to cease doing that when I heard other cattlemen doing it and just sounding so foolish, stating, just repeating what they've heard or read. And while I do believe those things, I believe it's more important that I leave it to people like you, dietitians, nutritionalists, medical doctors, to carry that part of the message for me. I am an expert in animal welfare. I'm an expert in regenerative farming practices in terms of the environment. 
And I'm an expert in rural economics. But I don't look too good talking about fatty acid profiles and conjugated acid and stuff like that. I got opinions, but you know they're, they're they're really just opinions. I should leave that to the experts. Well, I think what we've got here is proof that if you're doing what's good for the animal and good for the environment, it ends up being good for us too. I wholeheartedly believe that. You know, I also believe that. You know, the natural systems that we have evolved over, I'm just talking about nature, it evolved over countless eons. And the industrialization is really only of farm animal production. It's only been for the last 70 or so years. So you know, it's, it's, I think it's really foolhardy to believe that we can suddenly improve so radically and dramatically on a system that's evolved over so long without unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. But that's what we've done. Yeah. We've just got a few minutes left. I knew our time would fly, and I could ask you a gazillion more questions. But out of respect for your work, I really want to open this up to you and just say, what do you want our listeners to know about what you've discovered and learned? Mm, wow. Well, I guess I would say that the transition on this farm, and I think any farm, is a journey and not a destination. When I first started making the transition, I naively believed that I could change just a small number of production practices and have it all run just exactly the way it's supposed to. And what I've learned is that one change leads to another, to another, to another, In all things we do here, we seek to emulate nature. And our best emulation is imperfect. And our worst emulation is poor, just poor. But every year, we do a little bit better. And I think that, I guess it took, the takeaway is it took us 70 years to go from a humane, sustainable, fair production system to what we have now. And it'll take us 70 years to get back to a really good production system, and that's if the consumer support it. If the consumer does not support it, it's simply not going to happen, period. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we should direct people to your website, which, again, is www.whiteoakpastures.com, for them to see just how beautiful a system you have created. There are many press reports. You have created jobs for people within your community. You're protecting the environment. And we're out of time, but I just want to thank you so much for what you've done and what you continue to do. Well, uh, I hope people will come and visit us on the the website, but we've also built an on-farm restaurant and on-farm lodging. So for those of you who can... I hope you'll come see us. Let us show you what we do. We're fiercely proud of the program.
Oh, I'm thrilled. I will definitely be down to see you. Well, in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Mr. Will Harris, fourth-generation cattleman who tends the same land that his great-grandfather settled in 1866, White Oak Pastures in southwest Georgia. I also want to remind everyone that Food Sooth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Please do visit whiteoakpastures.com and see why Mr. Harris is recognized internationally as a leader in humane animal husbandry and environmental sustainability. Thank you so much, Mr. Harris, for being my guest. Thank you very much for having me, Melinda.